So welcome to episode three of Simulcast and today I've got with me Margaret Beerman and we're going to be talking about getting started in simulation research and I think this is a challenging topic for those of us who are primarily clinicians, educators, thinking about taking it to that next level. So Margaret's here with me today and uh, just to introduce her, she's the course convener for the Grad Cert in Clinical Simulation at Monash. She's the Deputy Director of the NetSim program, which we'll be talking about shortly in a pause and discuss session. Uh, she's also my friend and a very esteemed simulation researcher, which is why she's here today. So welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Vic. So I'm going to set the scene a little bit, Margaret, so we've got a, something to sort of anchor this discussion in. And for our listeners, I want you to imagine you've got your sim program up and running. You feel pretty good about it. You've got some sessions scheduled regularly. You've mastered the technical stuff. You've got some good scenarios. And, you know, your debriefing is pretty good, especially after you listened to Walter Epic last month. Uh, but during your performance review with your boss, uh, the department head, she says, look, you really should publish some stuff here. You're doing some great work, but it'd be excellent if we could really prove this is working. And, you know, people are on my case every now and again to justify the money, let's face it. And so if you could get a couple of papers, that'd be good. So, of course, you sort of think, well, I've done some research before. Maybe I should do an RCT, uh, but don't really know where to start. So, Margaret, what advice would you give us? if we were in this situation? It's not an uncommon situation and what I think is that it's actually a very good one because you've got um, enthusiasm and your head of department supports the idea of research. I mean, surely that's a good thing and you've also got a little bit of research experience. But overall, the one piece of advice I would give to anyone who's thinking about simulation research in any form is to read and to find out what speaks to you because there's a lot of different forms of research and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I think that if you don't know what's out there, if you don't have a sense of what the conversations are there, what conversations are there out in the world, then you won't know which conversation you want to join. Once you've done that, then you can think about the next step. Mm, now, you've used a bit of simulation lingo there, Margaret. Uh, what speaks to you? I've heard these terms before, joining a conversation. I think that is a perspective that we often don't bring to research. And you're sort of saying, what are people talking about and how can our work contribute to that? Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, actually, I didn't. I'm not the first person to use that. I've um, learned it from a wonderful researcher called Lorelei Lingard, who talks about joining the research conversation. The thing is, is that a lot of the time, Time, I think that novice simulation researchers don't have a very good idea about what other people have done. Um, and if you don't know that, then you can't contribute. The other thing is, is that people talk a lot about qualitative and quantitative, and I, I've taught both of those things. And sometimes you have a prejudice in your mind or a bias in your mind that you're going to be a quant person or a qual person because that's always what you've known. Then you actually end up reading the literature and go, gee, I just love that paper that was very qualitative or I just want to be involved in research that proves something which may sit, sit, set you more in the quant, quant place. Or you might say, I just want practical wisdom to share with my colleagues, which sets you into something that we call the scholarship of learning and teaching place. That is, a, it's about describing what you do educationally 
to benefit the wider community. Mm, and I think they're nice distinctions that aren't always obvious to us. So I want to take you back to that joining the conversation. So you said read a lot. So many of us might know some simulation mm-hmm. journals, but if you had to sort of name the top three or four, which would be the ones we'd be looking at? Well... Okay, so I wouldn't necessarily only start with simulation journals, but Mm -hmm. I will answer your question. There are really four journals, Simulation and Healthcare, BMJ Stell, Simulation Technology Enhanced Learning, Advances in Simulation, which is edited by my very dear colleague, Deborah Nestel, and uh, Clinical Simulation and Nursing. They're the four main simulation-based journals. In addition, I'd really recommend reading the general health professional education literature. And, for example, if you're very novice, if you have never stepped foot in anything resembling research before, you could start off with Clinical Teacher. That's a very accessible, easy-to-read journal. If you've got a bit of research behind you, particularly medical staff tend to come in with quantitative research and nursing sometimes have a bit more qualitative, look to see which articles align with your previous experience. Because the other thing that we often neglect is that we already come in knowing quite a bit about research just by being healthcare practitioners. There's a baseline understanding of what research is. Mm-hmm. As you go on, sometimes that's completely overturned, but I, I think it's really important to come to grips with what it is you mm-hmm. know. So I think you're saying have some faith in yourself. Yeah. And having mentioned those journals, and we'll post the links of those on the blog for folks, uh, and you're saying read them, sort of get a sense of what's been done, then how do you match that up with, say, doing a more targeted search in a field that you're interested in? I think it's a, a quite... A challenging question, and I'm, I, I think I might digress for a moment to talk about research skills. So research skills, like everything else, there's a novice to expert curve. Sometimes people expect a lot from themselves when they start. So the first time you start running searches, the odds are you're not going to do them very well. And I think that if you can, you can enter the arena understanding that, that is enormously helpful. Searching is one of those things where there are lots and lots and lots of resources available. Most universities, if you have access to a university, have it on their websites. A lot of those are actually just freely available. So you could probably go to any, you know, the University of Oxford and they'd have had a search material on there. And it's all pretty much the same. And I really would recommend it because I think a lot of the time people assume that they can search a literature when they haven't really come to grips with rigorous ways of doing it that's the first thing and the other thing that i'd just pop in there is Mm -hmm. um actually booking an appointment with a librarian and in fact if you haven't done it for a while you know to be molly meldrum do yourself a favor (laughs) that may be an australian reference apologies to international listeners and go to the library because the searching software the searching approaches they change all the time and every time I check in I learn that something new has happened and things have improved or they've changed and it's easy to forget to forget that because you just go back and do what you've always done Mm. so the first point is searching the second point is the terms the search terms in simulation health professional education they're really difficult They're, they're a key part of the battle. We don't use constant terms. There's not a lot of standardisation. It can be really difficult to find things. So there's a formal way of searching and then there's what 
most of us do just to start off, which is use something, you know, whatever it takes your fancy. It could be Google Scholar, it could be Scopus, it could be Medline. Just type in a few search terms and see what comes up. See if you can find synonyms for the words you're searching for. I mean, a really straightforward example, simulated patients. We call them in Australia. They're standardised patients spelt with a Z in the US. But they could be standardised patients spelt with an S in the UK for example. Mm. So it's it, it's very messy. Mm. So that sounds like a great ploy for, as you said, getting some expertise, talking to people. The other thing that I've done is actually look up other systematic reviews and see how they did their search strategy and you can see some of those forms. Yeah, and in fact, if you're, it, it, that's a really good advice. And if you're very novice, again, and you, the thought of searching and um, learning how to do a search is just too much, think of a conference that you've been to, and conferences are one of the best starting points for novices. Who spoke? Who did you like? Find their papers. Read them. It doesn't have to be hard to start with. Mm. Because research, and I will beat the drum, research is a lot of fun. It's enjoyable, you really get to think deeply about things and you get to uncover new stuff and, yeah. Yeah, and like I think even if it isn't something that people get as much joy from as you, you obviously do, <laughs> I think it's just a necessary discipline to know that what you're doing is working, which is a little bit where I want to take you now yeah. because I think one of the things uh, we often are tempted to do and our supervisors do is prove this simulation thing works. And one of the things I've learned from you is to sort of take a different approach. It's not whether something works. It's how does this work in this place at this time and in what situations? And it's much more complex questions, not just for simulation, but health professional education in general. So can you help those of us who are in a RCT kind of headspace take a transition to this kind of approach? So you'll get a bit of different view on this. My view is that RCTs can be valuable, but they do only examine a very small thing. And so that thing could be valuable, but it's often not part of the big complex picture. And so if you're interested in something that has any degree of interlocking variables, complexity, you know, non-technical skills, um, teamwork, those sorts of things are examples of things that are very difficult to, to look at with RCTs or to measure in that sort of very uh, reductionist type of way, then you kind of have to put that to one side because one of the big issues is how things work in particular contexts and there's a whole area of, of thinking it's called uh, realist evaluation realist synthesis that talks about what works for whom and under what circumstances and um, Ray Pawson talks about what works in you know Watford and Wednesday will not work in um, in Tottenham on Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> yep and we so, kind of know this to be yeah. true as clinicians, don't we? And as educators, we go to different places and we can see something work, but it doesn't necessarily translate. So I think it's an important way of understanding for us. And and you're right, I think this basic idea of does simulation work, an RCT of simulation versus something else, I think is commonly intuitively attractive, but as you say, very flawed. I think that particular example too of comparing something with something else, I see RCTs um, and in the trade, we call them media comparative, um, where they can you compare simulation with paper or simulation with a lecture. Or the comparator is often problematic mm. um, because it's like you're saying, well, let's compare apples with oranges mm. and see what happens. And that's what I mean about isolating the variable. 
I mean, what is it about the simulation that actually helps it work? Is it the debriefing? Is it the is it the um, content? Is it the facilitators? There's so much that are different between the two. You you can't isolate what the effect is. Mm. And I guess uh, one of the things that might be helping us in this, and I'm going to give a little shout-out to our journal club this month, which is about some recently published new standards for mm-hmm. reporting simulation-type research. Mm-hmm. Have you got a view? Is that going to really help us or tell us more? Um, I have an ambivalent relationship with standards. I think overall they help. I really like them. But I think that standards always need to be engaged with thoughtfully. And from memory, those ones are guidelines for, for publication. And that's exactly what I where I think they're really helpful. Mm. Um, and that they're most helpful for novices because you can use them like a checklist. Have I done this? Have I done that? Have I done this? And that's, you know, just to cross-check to make sure you've done stuff. They can also help you frame a way of thinking, a research way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where I think standards can become less helpful is if they're applied without thought. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we'll look forward to the discussion in the Journal Club. And uh, as previously mentioned, Professor Deborah Nestel is going to be our expert opinion on uh, the paper that we're just talking about. So, Margaret, I want to take you back to some of these practical things. We've gone through some of the conceptual things about how to approach it, um, some of the differences with other kinds of research we might be familiar with. Uh, I want to take you back to research skills. And we talked about database searching. If you were sort of saying, I've got some time, I'd like to sign up for an online course or a face-to-face course or just do my own self-directed learning, how would you suggest people approach getting skills that would help them in this kind of research? First port of call would be a conference and the sorts of research skills development workshops that they run there. I think it's important because you get a broad sense of where you sit in the community. You can also go to a range of other general research uh, courses and they're really valuable if you're tr- if you're really struggling searching the literature go to a searching the literature course if you're really interested in qualitative or quantitative research there are programs in both of those sorts of things my feeling is that separating out simulation from general health professional education research is not necessary mm. so if you can't find something that's simulation specific do a course in educational research. There are a lot of those around. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way is word of mouth. Find out what your colleagues have done, what has worked well. Let Google be your friend. (laughs) Sure. And probably the other thing uh, that builds on that is mentoring and finding Mm. some people to learn from. I guess it's tricky, but how do you go about navigating the network, say, to find some project that you could join in on and learn from how it's done? Interestingly, in my experience, people almost never do that. Hmm. Usually, researchers come with the things they want to research because they're really passionate about making a difference in their workplace, which is just fantastic. So that creates some problems because it means that you have to come up with a research question, a research design, research skills, everything from scratch. And when we have offered um, at Healthpeer and and Uh, other places I've worked have offered opportunities for people to come in on research programs as novices that aren't very closely aligned with what they're interested in. So I actually think doing the formal way of aligning yourself with a centre 
which has an active research profile, undertaking a course where there is a research project where you can have a supervisory relationship. Or if you're more experienced and can bring skills, you can put together a team and work with, with, with other people. I think those are really sort of the three, the three ways forward. Mm. It is difficult for people who are isolated to build research skills. I wouldn't want to discourage people, but I think that it, that, that it can be a lonely, a lonely thing. Yeah, so collaboration is the key, as with many things. And as you say, even if there might not be a simulation research centre, there may well be a health professional education research centre at most uh, universities that have got medical schools or nursing schools, as you, as you said. So, look, uh, the last thing that I really wanted to touch on is the relationship between doing evaluations and doing research, because lots of us do things that we regard as, to be honest, pretty ordinary evaluation, like at scale stuff. Did you like the sim? And, of course, people did. How translatable is evaluation to what people put in a box and call research? That should be a very simple question to answer, but it isn't. (laughs) Um, I think, interestingly that we undersell that type of work. I think it is really valuable and I think that there are a few publication outlets for it, like places like Clinical Teacher. Because really what you're doing with that research is you're saying, this is a program that I made. This is what I thought was interesting and important. This is something novel or interesting or clever that we came up with that other people might look to. So I wouldn't want to downplay that in any way. But it is different from research which is relevant across different environments. And having qualitative background, I don't want to say generalisable, but that the insights that you uncover are things that people can really use in their way of thinking, in their way of practising, and the choices that they make on a much more global scale. So it's a much more abstracted, theoretical plane. And that's, you know, capital R research. And that's what I love, but it doesn't mean that the other work isn't valuable. And I did a, um, a, uh, an evaluation, piece of evaluation research for a course that we ran for RACS, the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, and that was a small piece of evaluation research on what was at that time a novel program. Got it published, a little bit of pain as always writing those things up, <laughs> but, you know, got it published, and it's been very well cited because people are hungry to see what had been done, and how they might do something similar. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's always a sign that sometimes the values, the prejudgments that we make about what the the community is going to find valuable is not actually Mm. what they do find valuable. And to be honest, I think those journals you mentioned before understand that because Mm. there are some different formats than sometimes you see in, say, traditional clinical medical journals, certainly, uh, where people will be looking for technical reports, they'll be looking at case studies, they'll be prioritising some things that, as you say, aren't necessarily of the IMRAD format that we Mm. might be more used to. IMRAD. Introduction, methods, results, results and discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Correct. A little uh, jargon. A little. a little bit of jargon, yeah. Yep. So now you know what, Im- if you're listening, you now know what IMRAD <laughs> stands for. All right. So I'm just going to sort of summarise where we're up to. I think we've talked a little bit about why we would do this. 
I think we've talked a little bit about how and emphasised the ideas of getting some skills, working with some people, and perhaps the thing that's come out for me from this is this idea of contributing to a conversation, that getting a sense of what are the good questions and where can I contribute to this conversation. Uh, I'm going to ask you now, what's floating your boat at the moment? What are you researching? Oh, that's a really good question. So at the moment I'm spending a little bit of time looking at some of the data from NETSIM, which is a very vast program we had 4,000 participants and we're looking at the data that was collected between 2012 and 2014. We're doing two things with that. The, the thing that I'm working on at the moment is we asked participants what they found to be powerful and uncomfortable about simulation experiences and most people wrote a little paragraph. And we've gone through for those who consented and we're starting to analyse those narratives from the perspective of those people talking about learning experiences to see what really stuck, what that data says and what my, my hunch, my observation has been before, is that a simulation often has what we might call a transformative effect. So it might not be that you learn a new skill particularly and you take it off to practice. I mean, that's obviously an important aspect. But that things happen within simulation that really stick in people's mind and affect their practices a long way down the track. It's true with clinical education as well too. So wanting to tease out what are those elements, how that actually unfolds. So it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of work because I think they're about, we have about, 5,000 entries to sort through and we're working out which ones are narratives, working with stories and then we're going to code up the stories and see what comes. Mm -hmm. So, And if I can just kind of deconstruct that because you've, you've described that as an expert but I think <laughs> what you've sort of seen there is you are already running a program and you're looking at how, what opportunities are there for researching within it. You've got a number of people and you've taken a qualitative approach that would match this investigating something that's really where people are describing meaning using narrative you're never going to get this from a like it item type uh survey and you're having to take some skills at analyzing qualitative data is that pretty much the approach yeah and to give you a sense of the flavor of the sorts of things because i think that also really helps is so this you know people are saying well the moment i that was absolutely transformative for me was when i got to try something in sim that I wasn't confident about and then it worked and then I knew I could do xyz and I went on and did it mm. or there was that moment where the team leader in the middle of a very messy sim stopped and recounted where we were all up to and at the end of the debrief I thought to myself wow that's something I'm going to use and I've gone ahead and used that ever since. Mm. So these are the sorts of moments we're going for and that, that also gives a sense of why it's qualitative and why we're using narrative because it, it's difficult to find that stuff. Mm. And I think what's important there, Margaret, is what you've described is something that as educators we probably see every day and we really feel and then you've described the rigorous way that we actually go about demonstrating it using research and then it's not just our gut feel but hopefully it actually supports, as you said before, what we already know. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I rather hope that we're all now not just inspired but a little bit informed about how to take the next step. And I think, as you said, looking forward to doing some more reading, doing some more researching. But the other thing that really came home for me was working with some other people who can help show us the way. 
isolate what you're most interested in in your own practice. So if you're interested in debriefing, if that's something really fascinates you, it's really good to think about that, to understand that. It might be making things very real is very important to you. Think that's a, a significant piece of your practice. It might be program design. It could be anything. But working out where you're coming from is a fundamental part of the research toolkit. Thanks, Margaret. Thank you. Oh,